Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From building a well-balanced college list and developing a payment strategy to creating a high school plan and more. Each episode will help guide your family through various steps of the process. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga from College Coach. Um, Today is going to be a pretty special day, uh, very timely, um, maybe controversial. Um, In fact, I'm quite confident it's going to be controversial, but extremely important um, to college admissions and the college landscape today. So we're really going to be devoting the entire show to decisions recently made by the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, Kira Tyler, college coach veteran, will be joining me for the second and third segments to discuss the impact of the court's recent ruling on the use of affirmative action in college admissions. But for this first segment, I'm talking with Michelle Clifton. Those of you who are watching the video, you can already see her on screen. She's a college coach finance expert, and she'll be discussing or telling me about, because I don't know much about this particular topic, uh, SCOTUS's recent decision regarding student loan repayment. So welcome, Michelle. Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me. So maybe... um, Maybe you could start by giving us like a little background. So we know that the Supreme Court blocked federal student loan debt relief last week. So any updates, like maybe give us the background if people aren't 100% sure what's going on. Sure. Yeah. So let's see. So back last August, uh, President Biden had announced that there was going to be one-time debt relief for federal borrowers up to 20000 um, So 10000 for most borrowers, 20000 for those that got Pell Grants. And so that, um, there were a couple cases that ended up going to the Supreme Court. Um, and then one in particular, which was uh, Biden v. Nebraska, that one ended up um, coming ruling against uh, student loan debt relief on Friday. That was announced finally uh, on Friday with a 6-3 decision against the forgiveness program. However, there were some updates on Friday afternoon. So uh, President Biden announced that they're going to try again uh, this time. So before it was through the HEROES Act of 2003, which basically was um, a way to waive or modify provisions of Title IV aid um, due to a national emergency. Um, and that did not work that way, obviously. But with uh, what they're going to try to do this time is go through the Higher Education Act of 1965. Now, what that means is that it's going to, if this is successful, it's going to take longer to go through the process um, because it requires negotiated rulemaking, which is includes like public hearings and a comment period. Um, it could take months um, to go through this process. And we don't know if it's going to be successful, um, but if it is, we'll, you know, we're certainly going to be following it closely either way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Pretty complicated. And yeah. interesting to know that there is another potential avenue. I've, that is definitely something that I wasn't aware of. So that's yeah. good to know. And then, so what should borrowers, borrowers who requested a refund during the pause do now? Yeah, so they had announced when the, when the one-time debt relief was initially announced, they said anyone who made payments from March 13th of 2020 to present could actually request uh, refunds for their payments, um, especially those who uh, were going to be 
getting the one-time debt relief. So if you were someone who requested a refund and you still have that money sitting in an account, hopefully, you mm-hmm. can actually pay that towards your student loans uh, really at any time. But ideally, it would want to do so before September 1st uh, because September 1st is when interest is going to resume mm-hmm. on federal loans. Mm-hmm. So if you, yeah, wanna, if you want it to all go to a principal, that, it's best yeah. to do it now. Yeah, I have a I have a family member who's in that situation. And okay. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm like, I know that it's not like exciting to spend ten thousand dollars on your student loans but think about what you'll get back if you do this exactly <laughs> you know, like, i know it's hard interest rates are not low on loans you know what i mean right. so, yeah yeah absolutely all right and how about the pause though could it be extended again i mean it was extended you know yeah so once. many times um you yeah you would think that I, I imagine they probably would have wanted to extend it again while they go through this process uh but due to the debt ceiling bill, they're actually blocked um, to do that any further. So Mm. they have to resume uh, repayment. So as I said, interest resumes on September 1st. The first payments are going to be due in October um, so that um, borrowers will likely have varying deadlines in October, but the first payment will be due in October. The date will be determined by their servicer. Mm -hmm. So servicers are required to release billing statements at least 21 days prior to the due date. So um, they will know at least 21 days prior. Um, and then something else that was interesting on Friday afternoon was they announced a 12-month great kind of a grace period that they're calling an on-ramp period. Mm-hmm. So what this is, is it means that any borrower who doesn't make any payments or misses some payments between the time frame of October 2023, when, when the first payments are due, through September of 2024, they're not going to be charged late fees they won't be reported negatively to the credit bureaus and they won't go into default. However, as we talked about, interest will still start to accrue on September 1st. And those that are working towards forgiveness, whether that's public service loan forgiveness for government or not-for-profit workers, or even those that are planning to pay under an income-driven plan for a long period of time and hoping for forgiveness after 20 or 25 years, those months that they miss will not count towards that. So, it's 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 it'll be nice for those who need the extra time but if you can make your payments i'd encourage you to do so yeah don't ignore that interest accruing that yeah, is not absolutely. A, not a good thing for the balance so right. yeah so have the details of the income driven repayment plan change repayment plan change has been released yet they have yeah so this was um so they announced that they're they're are they um release proposed changes back in January and we've been waiting for them to finalize them. And they, as I um, wondered what would happen, they announced it with all of this on Friday. So they are going to ch- change the income driven plans as they proposed, um, but a couple changes within those changes. So there before it was going to be that they were modifying the revised pay as you are in plan, which I really wasn't loving the revised modified, <laughs> modified revised wording. So thankfully they're rebranding completely to the save. It's going to be now repay is now the save plan and save stands for saving on a valuable education. Mm. So, um, but so we always knew that this, these changes put, and I'll talk about what the changes are in a second, but they potentially wouldn't go into, into uh, effect until July of 2024. We were hoping that they were going to be doing an earlier implementation if they could, since people are going into repayment earlier. Um, and so they did announce that some of the changes will go into effect in October, but some will not go into effect until July to make things confusing because everything's always confusing with loans. So mm-hmm. <laughs> a couple of things that are happening now. So 
with income-driven repayment plans, the way that they are calculated is they take the poverty guideline based on your family size, and it's assessed at a certain percentage. So currently, the revised page you earn is 150%. Now, that's going to be increasing to 225%. So they take that amount, and that's, you know, so 225% of the poverty of the poverty guideline that's okay. not counted as income mm-hmm. towards your calculated payment. Okay. So that right there will increase or sorry, decrease payments for for a lot of people. So just they had given the example of anyone who earns like a single person earning 32,800 or less, they will have a zero due monthly payment. So if you make under that, you can assume that your payments will be zero or a family of four, if they make 67,500 or less, they would also have zero. But they did say that as far as, as far as like a general impact, um, anyone who earns more than that will, will save at least $1,000 a year in their payments. Mm-hmm. So that alone will, will um, decrease some payments just based on that calculation. Um, and then a couple other things that are happening right away. Um, this is a great one. So the way it works right now is that, so say you have a very low monthly payment and it's not even paying off the accrued interest each month. That accrued interest would make your loan continue to grow. So you'd be in repayment for years and years and your your balance is just increasing. Mm-hmm. And yes, maybe maybe eventually you'll get forgiveness, but that can be really stressful. I've talked to so many borrowers that that has been a huge point of stress because they feel like they're not getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. So that, now that interest will stop accumulating. So if your monthly payment is zero or if it's low and you're not covering the interest, the interest will be um, will not accumulate. Um, on okay. the loan, and that really is huge. I know it someone is. who I've known people, it's like, you know, they pay off 20,000 and they owe more than when they started. And oh, yet yeah. they have been paying off. I mean, yeah. it, it seems so unjust, you know? No, Um, in this past year alone, I've talked to so many borrowers who have had loans since the late nineties and it's just like, and their, their balances are, are similar to what they started with. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, I took out loans. Like I want to be clear that I'm not one of these people who thinks never take out loans, but. Oh yeah. No, I I did too. (laughs) I mean, you know, I was, but I only had to borrow like 12,000, you know, like you can repay that. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I drove a used car for a very long time. Like that was, you know, like, like I, I drove a very old car and, and I didn't have a car payment and then I was able to repay my loans. And I know that that still puts me in a fortunate position, but I think like some amounts you can pay off. Like, what would you say as a rule of thumb for people listening to this going forward? Yeah. Are you, our typical rule of thumb is if you can keep your borrowing to the total of what your first annual salary will be getting out of school, then you'll be in a, a good mm-hmm. position to repay that. Back. And research that. Don't assume yes. that because a oh, friend yeah. of yours older brother <laughs> is making a killing, you know? Yep. So yeah, do some research on that. Go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, mm-hmm. the Occupational Outlook Handbook, like spend some time trying to figure it out. Yeah, uh, my first job out of college, mind you, this was quite a long time ago, but I was making 20000 a year. So it's good that I borrowed less than that. Yeah, <laughs> so you, were good, like, you were in a good position. So yeah, a I was able to that. pay it off, even if even though the, my income was fairly low. So, yeah. um, all right. So and what should ba- borrowers be doing now then? Like, you know, there's a lot of like, well, if then, if then. So, you know, what should they be doing now? 
Like, uh, you know, what, you know, what are some resources for them, you know, beyond obviously this podcast? Yeah, I would say the most important thing is to find out who your servicer is, because there's been so many changes within the federal servicing um, since 2020. So most borrowers who were in repayment in 2020 have a different servicer than they did Mm -hmm. back then. Some many have um, switched or gotten out of federal servicing. So the best way to find out who that is, is to log into studentaid.gov. You'll need to have your username and password that you used for the FAFSA to get in. If you forgot it, you can reset it. Um, but go to the dashboard within that website, and that'll show you who your servicer is. If you've, if it's a servicer you've never been into their website before, make sure either way log. Well, so if you've never been, in, create an account with that servicer mm-hmm. um, so that they'll have all your current, um, you know, contact information, your your phone number, your address, and all of that. And then if you have been in that site. But it's been a while because a lot of us just haven't logged in in quite some time. Mm-hmm. Make sure you know what the username and password is, have a reset if you need to, and then go into your servicer site and make sure they have your current phone number and, and um, address so that they can reach out to you um, once they start to um, prepare everyone for re- mm-hmm. Um And so once you're there, um, know who your servicer is, then I would say now it's time to really estimate your monthly payments to see what they're going to look like going forward. So use the loan simulator on studentaid.gov. I was just on it this morning and it doesn't have any of the save plan updates there currently. So it's going to show the current calculation of of repay, but at least to get you started to see the different plans, use that loan simulator. Um, And then if you haven't already, review your budget, create a spending plan especially if you've gotten out of the habit of paying these loans or if you're a recent graduate and you've never been in repayment, this is going to be a shock for a lot of people. So um, take some time to do that now and don't wait until the last minute. Don't wait until September, um, even October to worry about this. You know, we have the summer to, to take some time to get prepared. So do that now. Uh, as we get closer, go ahead and choose a repayment plan. And if you can start setting aside what your monthly payment is going to be, now. Uh, so if it's going to be $300, set aside $300 each month this summer, and then you'll ha- have some extra money. You can use that to make a one-time payment to your loan. Or if you have higher interest rate debt, you can use it for that. Or if you need to bump up your emergency fund, you'll have some money there, but you'll be used to not paying that. So it won't be as um, stressful and, and hard in the fall once we mm-hmm. get back into this. And I would say the last thing would be to set up um, auto debit for your payments if you can, because that'll give you a 0.25 interest rate reduction. You can do that right with your servicer. Yeah. And then you don't have to worry about getting delayed and what can happen with all that. Like, yeah, you can even pick your date on that probably, right? Like, I mean, I'm just guessing, or is it, or, you know, I don't think you can. Oh, that's too bad. Cause I always tried to set up my bills for right after my paycheck. Yes. (laughs) I do that with a lot of things like my car payment and cards and things like that. But yeah, I don't think you can change it once it's, it's set. Um, Mm -hmm. you might be able to ask your servicer, but I'm not quite sure there. Yeah. It's a good question. Yeah, just in case. That's a good way. If you're not good at budgeting, that's a good way to know. This is what I have left. I don't yeah. have any more left. Oh, totally. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. When we return, I'll be welcoming Kira Tyler to discuss SCOTUS's decision on affirmative action at colleges and universities. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. 
For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results, 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome, Kara. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about SCOTUS's recent decision on affirmative action. Um, Thanks, Sally. Glad to be here. Yeah, I think um, I think before we start, we should acknowledge that this is going to be controversial and that um, our viewpoints might not be shared with all our listeners. And that's fine. What I what I want to say, though, to our listeners is that if you disagree, that's OK. But try and listen carefully to what we're saying. You know, hopefully we've built up some real you have a lot of confidence in us and what we've said about admissions over time. And so maybe listen as insiders to how we feel about this issue and, and what we know about it based on the facts and our lived experience with this as our career and, and beyond it just being a career. Right. So, yeah. so I just thought I would acknowledge that right from the outset, but we welcome, um, you know, I'm glad people are listening to this. So I'm just start yeah. by saying that. Um, so first, I was hoping, though, that you could kind of summarize the decision. I mean, a lot of people might not be clear on it. I've heard people interchange affirmative action and quotas, I mean, it, which is not the case. It's not the same thing. And that's sure. not what we're talking about. Um, so if you could just give like a brief summary, I think that would be helpful. Sure. So this final decision that came out last Thursday um, through the Supreme Court, it's the two schools, right? It's the the college and fellows, the fellows and presidents of Harvard University, and then it's University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Um, and uh, the in 2013, a conservative activist filed a, a case um, against Harvard University about its admission practices, claiming that they discriminated, particularly um, against Asian American students. Um, and so that made its way through the courts. This has already been decided two times in Harvard's favor. And then in 2021, he petitioned the Supreme Court to hear um, this particular case, they took it. And that is what we saw come out on Thursday. Um, it's important to note that UNC also had a similar outcome one time, they had one decision that was also in favor of 
their reading processes. Um, and so the truth is this had already been decided, mm-hmm. um, but the Supreme Court um, took it up and decided that they wanted to make a different decision that um, was a re- reversal of the lower courts. Mm-hmm. Um, one quick thing about this SFFA, that Students for Fair Admissions, that is Edward Blum's um, group. He is, as I said, a conservative activist who filed an earlier case um, against the University of Texas. Um, so this, he's sort of a firebrand and I think he would say he would consider himself successful. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm yeah, completely thrilled. And uh, I've been reading articles that say that they don't see this as the end of the road either, which I think is important to note. Like it's kind of a um, an initial domino to fall and they can right. start looking at employment practices and all kinds right. of things. So, right. not, I mean, that's not our purview today, but I think right. it is important to note that um, as well as the fact that, as you pointed out, this overturns decades of precedent. Decades. Like, Boom. That's right. Yeah, this started um, in, you know, with Kennedy's presidency and continued um, when uh, LBJ became president. And so this is from the 60s. And affirmative action, as we know it, really came out as a result of language that was used in the Civil Rights Act, um, where it was like, we want the government to act affirmatively with purpose mm-hmm. um, to end discrimination across gender and race. Um, And so that really, as you said, Sally, this is decades of precedent um, that should be settled law, um, but isn't. I think it's also important for people to understand. So we have nine Supreme Court justices. Justice Roberts is the chief justice. Um, This was decided for UNC six to three um, was the, you know, how the judges voted. So the three women Kagan, Sonia My- uh, Sotomayor, and Jackson were the three. And then for Harvard, if people are curious, it was a six to two because Justice Jackson recused herself. She was on the board at Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, so she took herself out of, but still, you know, I think um, her comments still ring very, they, yes. they still loom large, right? They're still yes. Yes, I think so. Yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> there was yeah. a for people who are interested, there was an interesting dialogue before between her and Justice Thomas. So Thomas. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's kind of like back up a little bit and yeah. talk a little bit about the viewpoint of like college admission offices. Like we all have colleagues um or friends who were former colleagues. We know people in the profession who still work in college admission offices. How are they feeling about it? And also, I just kind of want to point out, too, that if people are curious about um, kind of looking up more about how people are feeling within the profession of admission, they can go to the NACAC webpage. So National Association of College Admission Counselors has released a couple different statements. Um, so I think that might be interesting to check out, too. But so what what have you been hearing from your colleagues? From my colleagues, um, utter disappointment, frustration. Um, it's important to know that um, this this didn't come as a surprise. So, you know, I think we want our listeners to understand, like, people who work in the admission space, I think, are incredible, incredibly thoughtful and compassionate and are seeking to do their jobs well. Mm-hmm. And I think most of the time have a real connection to the work and also to the institutions that they support, right? And so I I think once it became clear 
that the Supreme Court decided to take the case in 2021, it sort of felt like the writing was on the wall. Mm-hmm. So people have been thinking about this really thoughtfully, um, but it still really felt, I think, to to our colleagues in the admission space, like a gut punch, mm-hmm. um, because even though the decision is now made, and to be frank, there's like a little bit of relief because now we can sort of move on and um, they are able to decide on policies that work well for their process. Um, that's really when you read some of the statements that it feels that's when it really um, doesn't it doesn't all fully line up. Right. I think in, in a lot of ways, um, the dissenting I'm sorry, the majority opinions don't really mirror what actually is going in on admission offices. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot of frustration and disappointment, um, you know, people as they're looking up some more information on the case they can look at the um it's either amicus or amicus there's a lot of i think um, it's amicus i think so but i could be wrong it's controversial (laughs) sally the the amicus brief that were filed um on the behalf of a number of institutions NACAC as well other lobbying bodies um that do this work it's it is um if it's going to be anything like what we have seen happen when other states have done away with affirmative action, um, this is not something that people who work in admissions want at all, period. Mm-hmm. I will mm-hmm. also say it's coming at a terrible time in the admission community as uh, offices are really struggling to hold on to their staff. You know, the pandemic made uh, undergraduate admissions really challenging and this sort of looming over also made it really tough. And so I worry for my colleagues in the profession, like, what is it like to work in an admission office Mm -hmm. right now, especially, and I know that we're talking mostly about schools that admit five, 10, 15, 25%, but you know, this will still have a ripple effect in other ways Mm -hmm. um, in a broader like space of, of colleges and universities. So Mm -hmm. I think they're pretty heartbroken. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that um, I saw a statement from Angel Perez about uh, from NACAC. He's the CEO of NACAC. And he he commented that the Supreme Court court recognized that colleges can consider students full identities through lived experiences, which the question is, how are you supposed to do that if you don't look at race? Because we are not in a post-racial society. I mean, I think, and, it, and like a direct quote is, we are dismayed at misunderstanding, at the misunderstanding of both the college admission process and effects of race and racism on educational systems in the USA. Like it's a little bit of a paraphrase because I was quickly taking notes, but um, I thought that was a very powerful statement. Um, and I think like people in admissions, they're there, believe me, you don't make good money in admissions. Even if you're at a wealthy institution like Harvard, which you would know, Kira, or I know people who worked at Stanford. I worked at the yeah. University of Chicago. These are wealthy institutions. Yeah. We, you still don't make that much money, right? No, so the reason you're doing this is because you care about it and you believe right. in education. So if you are suddenly part of a system that cannot address racial inequality, that is not going to be allowed to, I mean, there's got to be a sense of why are we doing this? Oh, 100%. And I think not only can you not address, but we're now asking you to roll it all back. Right. Right. Like this is in so many ways, the decision, um, it does not fulfill the promise of higher education, right? It doesn't fulfill the promise of the experience that students, most students are looking for. It doesn't fulfill the promise 
of uh, a, a faculty that's looking forward to generating ideas and discussion mm-hmm. from people with different perspectives. Like it is, it's deeply um, frustrating. I think the point is true of Mr. Perez. Like they don't understand the, the process. Mm-hmm. They also don't understand how kids really pour themselves, like pour their hearts out in this process, right? I always thought that it was a real, I was always really grateful for the opportunity to be a part of this experience for young people. It's so big, it's a Mm -hmm. huge deal, right? Like it's, there's a certain amount of vulnerability that happens in an application that I always just felt really honored to be a part of. And it is sort of like, yeah, you can, you can talk about your experience, but you can't incorporate your full identity. Mm -hmm. That's terrible. It's a horrific message. Mm-hmm. I think you and I can agree that this is happening in other sectors, right? Like this is showing up in other ways in our culture, in our society broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see kids be stripped of their opportunity to be authentic and fully themselves in this process is truly devastating. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the mark in a big way. Yeah. And I think for people who say, oh, but is it fair? I mean, I would say, this is also a misunderstanding of the college admission process. It's, it is and at these highly selective institutions, students get in for all kinds of reasons, right? right? Like including at some schools, legacy is still powerful, although that might go away. Certainly being major donor, and I'm not even talking about Varsity Blues where it was done illegally. I'm talking about sure. completely legal major donations. Absolutely. So you have a student Athletics. who would, Athletics is huge. And by the way, for people who think that athletics benefits students of color, no, the athletic recruiting process at these highly selective institution benefits primarily white students. I think that's very important to note as well. So it's not all merit, academic merit. That is simply not, there is no like pure process of academic merit that this is some exception to. That is not how it works. Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely agree with that, Sally. And not only is it not merit, it never has been about merit, right? Like, oh, it used to be worse. It used to be like, look, take a look at John F. Kennedy's and George W. Bush's transcripts. They're on the internet somewhere. Like, it's like, did you go to the right boarding school? Do you have the right name? Yeah, you can come to Yale or Harvard or whatever. We don't care. Do you have C's? it does boggle the mind, right? Yeah. And I think that in in today's world, if if you and I looked at that transcript, we'd be like, I not only not only is it not appropriate, but also are these people prepared, right? right. Like, are they prepared to come and be successful? Um, but yeah, it's never, it's never, never, never been a meritocracy. Yeah. Never. It's yeah. a giant, that's a giant lie. But I, I am really disheartened by this idea of like, yeah, you can still sort of talk about race, but really it has to be about determination and resilience and grit. It's the whole sort of bootstrap mentality. And we know that that's fa- like a fallacy, right? Cause not everybody has boots, mm-hmm. um, but, but also like it forces the student to sort of now see themselves as like, I have to, I have to sell myself. I have to sell my trauma. Mm-hmm. I have to sell my bad story. Mm-hmm. Right. If I can't talk about how this has affected me truly around my identity, I have to now sort of gin it up so that this is really um, you understand my pain. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what are we doing? What are we asking people? to? Well, do? It, it, which also leaves out the fact that if a student comes from a school where maybe they're a student of color, but they're part of the majority, 
they don't know that this is something that colleges are interested in. Right. right. Like I, I mean, I worked at um, two private high schools, um, you know, and I worked occasionally with students who, you know, were, um, you know, did come from some of these low income communities where they were part of the majority and then they would come to our school and be part of a minority. And when I would sort of talk to some of them about, well, write about your experience, write about what it's like maybe to go to Chadwick from your neighborhood. And they're like, oh, the colleges are going to think that's interesting. I thought I was supposed to write about like, you know, the fact that I like was part of the key club, like they just like they didn't. And I'm like, believe me, the colleges are going to find that interesting. Like you, <laughs> the colleges will find that very interesting. And very interesting. so they're not going to know. I mean, at this school, like I had a 40 to one counselor student, you know, counselor student ratio. And they, um, but most of their friends didn't have a counselor who met with them no, who could tell them these things. Three, 380 to one, right. 100 to one. 500 to one. to one. So yeah. Yeah, in some cases. Exactly. So I always think, I mean, it's just such a, as you said, sometimes they don't have any boots to start out with. I think that's yeah. really important. They just really, I mean, many don't. And, you know, I mean, I think that there are also, we are talking primarily about, I think you and I just in casual conversation that we're having publicly are talking about mostly black students, right? But this is also Latino students. These are certain, um, you know, ethnic groups within the overall Asian community, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is also, nobody talks about indigenous students. This mm -hmm. is about Native American students. Like this is about a whole host of people for whom the impact is super detrimental. It mm -hmm. just is like, and it's just unfair. You know, I think a lot about, again, the promise of higher education and like what my kids are most excited about when I counsel them and we're working on their applications or I'm talking to a family about um, who's new to this country, they're educated elsewhere. But, you know, the promise of higher education and these six people turned it all around in a way that didn't take into consideration at all what students are really excited about and looking forward to. Mm -hmm. And I just... It just is like one more way, I think, in which it's really obvious that like children are not a priority in our country. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're banning books. We're doing all of these things that really chip away at their autonomy, their ability to have lived experiences, to be educated, to be exposed to different perspectives, to understand what it means to be uncomfortable and work through that. Like, right, we're taking, we're stripping all of that away. Mm -hmm. um, and I just don't, I don't see where the good is. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, all this discussion of woke ideology, it's like, well, so is your, are your foundations of belief so weak that your students simply reading a book that disagrees or hearing from someone else that there's another perspective, everything's going to crumble? Right. It I mean, will it shake it? Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah, exactly. Like, is that, you know, isn't that is part of the point of going to college. The other thing I'll say is at most of the students that I talk to want a diverse college experience. Same. And this is going to take away. So even the, the majority students themselves want diversity. Um, and I hear that from um, from a whole variety of students. And this is going to not only potentially make it well, it is absolutely going to make it harder to bring in a class that at least represents our society. It's also going to, I think, drive students away who might otherwise apply, who come from these underrepresented groups. They might be like, I'm going to apply to Howard. I don't want to go to Harvard if they don't want me. That's an uncomfortable, distressing right. situation to be one percent, to be in classes where I'm the only person who looks like me. Right. I agree wholeheartedly. Yes. Yeah. 
So I think, um, so that's segment one. <laughs> so let's go ahead, Kira, and take a break. It's too bad we don't have much to say or think about that, you know? <laughs> like, but I guess we'll be able to fill our second segment. We'll I guess I guess we'll be able to. So yeah. anyway, so yeah, every, we, oh. No, I was just going to say, can I pick back up on something you just said? Oh, please do. Please okay. do. Yeah, absolutely. And, pick right back yeah. up on it. Okay. I, I think what you said is so critical, right? So how hard it is to be one of few. I mean, I, I, I'm a graduate of Northwestern University, super proud wildcat, but I graduated from the music school. I was one black person in my entire graduating class. Certainly as a classical musician, that those were spaces I was used to being in, right or wrong. I just realized this is my reality. And if I want to excel in my instrument, this is what I need to do. But to your point, it is a really hard sell for a lot of people to be like, yeah, come on in. There's only three of us, but it's great. It's like really challenging to live in that space because ultimately what it always does is people look at you and say, why are you here? You're only here for whatever. And I'm like, well, I'm here because I'm pretty great. Right? right. But it is like the amount of stress to your, to your, exactly to your point. I could see why people would a need to be convinced and then decide it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that's just, you know, a black student going, what is it like for, you know, a student from the Hmong community? What is it like for, um, you know, a student, um, you know, from an indigenous community who's lived on a reservation? Like, what what is that like when they don't see other people who look like them and they're in spaces where now they are the only? It's incredibly challenging. Yeah, yeah. And I just ask, like, as a white woman, I just ask you to imagine moments when, I mean, this happened to me um, I'll just say it when I was at the University of Chicago and I was the only woman on the leadership team and there was one black man on the leadership team and we would get sidelined sometimes in conversations. And I just thought, I'm sorry, but the only reason this could be happening is because he is black and I am a woman. It was I mean, it was just like it was the I and, you know, these are people who it was happening um, with people who would never have wanted to do that. It was not going to be a conscious situation. They were not consciously trying to do this. But I had to speak up and say, excuse me, are we part of this discussion? Right. You know, and, right. and which, of course, then created defensiveness. So in no way am I comparing my experience to yours. But I think in part, this There's is my insight into it. Yeah, that's right. This That's is right. my insight. And I ask other people to try and have that insight, if at all possible. I would agree with that. I also think your point about students, like we can say, I mean, the majority of students that I work with here at Bright Horizons College Coach are white students. They're phenomenal. They're good people. They also don't want to be in a super right. homogenous environment, right? right? Many of my Asian American students don't either mm -hmm. you know many of them are like look this has been my whole upbringing this has been my whole reality i want to branch out a little bit i want to meet somebody like it so i i think that there's also this perception out there that this isn't what students want like you know or this is what students want yeah. and i think what's really become clear to me overwhelmingly is this is not what my students want you know mm -hmm. they do want the opportunity to meet people who come from different cultures and have different backstories and it's really critical. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I've talked to Asian students who say, well, I want a school with more diversity. And you, I'm like, well, it's pretty diverse. It's not it's not super white. Like, I assume immediately that what they yeah. mean is like, I'm like, well, it's 50% white. Like, this school's only, I mean, 
that's pretty diverse to only be 50% yeah. white. And sure. they're like, oh, it's too many Asian students. And I've heard this from Asian American students. And, and it was just very interesting to me, but they want that broader group. And certainly white yeah. students that I work with say it all the time. It's very important to them. And I feel like there's a recognition of students who attend these highly selective schools, at least probably well beyond right. that, that right. they are going to do better in business if they can interact with people from different backgrounds. They, there's a real capitalist interest right. in, in wanting <laughs> diversity. Like if that's if that's if that's my only in with somebody with a listener here, trust me when I say there is a real capitalist win for um you know trying to make situations diverse in as many ways as possible. That also includes race, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can access more more people, you can access more money full step here you can have a bigger audience like that is the capitalist angle around this as well it isn't for those of you who may feel you know that this is just around like some sort of specific ideology or feelings like no there's actually like a real financial and economic engine that also runs better when mm -hmm. we are in more diverse settings period. yeah yeah i don't um i mean there's a very funny 30 rock episode and i know <laughs> that's about when the layman brothers goes under and so they bring in all the layman brother intern bros and they're all exactly the same and they run around in a pack together and obviously this is an exaggeration for humor sure. but i think it's kind of an interesting like symbol of what can sometimes happen already at these really elite firms and that i could see that being just so much worse with this like it's going to be where are the we need diverse leaders in society don't we so if you're cutting off any sort of a pipeline for underrepresented students of color to these yeah. elite institutions and we can debate the justice within the higher education i'm not going to say sure. that that's right. fair but where we are now it's a capitalist system certain institutions are given certain kinds of priority like, so then what's going to happen? Because the other thing, too, I mean, I, I discussed this with you another time, Kara, and I looked it up again and I couldn't find the study. But there's some pretty clear evidence that um, when they did like resumes to some of these firms and when the name was sort of a fairly like, let's use Justice Jackson, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, you, they use names like let's say somebody's name was Ebony Jackson sure. um, versus Emily Jones. Right. And Emily Jones in the study they did might have even had not quite as strong qualifications. Certainly they were still qualified, but maybe not quite as strong. Gee, guess who got the callback? Guess who got the callback? But but when um when Ebony Jackson had attended Harvard, Yale, Princeton, et cetera, the, some of that disappeared. Not all of it. I want to be very clear. But in this one study, at least there were more callbacks. And so I thought that is really interesting as well. We have the system that we have. This was going a yeah. small way to addressing it. And I want to emphasize small. <laughs> and now, so and, and yeah, very small. So but the small. Supreme Court has now gotten rid of that. Right. So, Sally, the next time I see you, I'll tell you about the story of um, getting my house ready to be reassessed, to have our, you know, to reapply for a mortgage. This was obviously not recently because the mortgage rates are not great, right. but, um, <laughs> you know, during the pandemic and what my husband, who's white, those of you who watch the 
uh, or listen to the pod regularly, you'll remember he was the architect. He and I were on mm-hmm. together um, and what he did to our house um, because we were concerned about the appearance of a mixed race family. Yes. In 2022. Yes. Li- 2021 living in Chicago and the kind of like uh, discrimination potentially that that would open us up to. So completely stripping away all sense of personality, ethnic, you know, background race in an effort. Like this stuff is real and mm-hmm. it's insidious, right? So we have it in college admission. We're trying to just sort of neutralize mm-hmm. race neutral, right? We see it in the way that I set up my home um, to be reassessed. Like it's, it, it, it is very insidious. Well, you, you said something interesting, which is about like a pipeline to leadership, right? And I think it's really important that people know if you haven't, I don't know how many times to say this, everybody, but if you haven't had the chance um, to, Sally and I were talking about a podcast, um, finish this one, but on the New York Times, the daily, they, they, you know, I don't always listen to them, but for this particular topic, I, they do a great job. Um, but, you know, there's any number of articles to read about the decision. Um, and there's a really interesting footnote from Chief, Chief Justice Roberts, who I should tell everybody wrote the majority uh, statement, which is big, right? And so one of the things that he talks about is that this um, end to affirmative action or race conscious admissions for undergrad, for for, um, institutions of higher learning should not apply to service academies or the military. I think it's like, people need to hear me when I say that, because essentially the reasoning is, we need diversity. We need the people within the ranks of our military to see themselves in leadership. Um, and I find that to be so insulting, distressing. It's just disappointing. Uh-oh. Am I frozen, Sally? No, I can. I mean, you're freezing. You're slow, but okay. keep going because we can still okay. hear you. Yeah. Okay, great. So what I was just thing is that I really find that um, I really find that that footnote about the military to me makes this seem like a decision that doesn't have a lot of merit, right? It feels like this is a decision that's more about the culture wars Mm -hmm. instead of being about legal precedent. I completely agree. I mean, I think obviously the leader, the, um, the military is a pipeline to leadership. Absolutely. But are you really saying that then that's not the case in higher education? I mean, like that's the only implication. That's the only sort of statement that would make what Robert said, I think, fair or meaningful. And it, and, and, but we know that's not true. We know that the military is not the only important source of leadership in this country. In fact, it's very important that it not be, Right. Like we're not a democracy if the military is the only outlet towards leadership. It should not. Right. We want it to be one of the sources. We don't we don't. To your point. Absolutely. So I think it also leaves me as a person of color feeling and, you know, cold makes me feel um, like, well, I'm I'm sort of good enough to be considered in this way for the military, but I'm really not good enough in this way to be considered for just regular higher education. I think that's hard. It's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, yeah, it really is. 
Yeah. So we'll just go ahead. We're just going to keep going and do what okay. <laughs> like, um, we have about eight minutes left, which I, I think gives us time to talk about more of this, which I think is great. I think okay. that one of the big questions. Oh, by the way, though, before I go on, I do want to say that I don't want to say that we're changing our mind about the fact that you can get a good education at any huge number of schools and do great things from there. I just think it's very notable that at certain firms, if you're a student of color, or an underrepresented student of color, these schools are very important pipelines. That is not so much the case yeah. if you are part of the majority population, right? That's so right. I just I did want to say that. And we're not changing our mind on that. We're uh, not changing our mind on that. We are not at all. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. that's a really important to note. Now, yeah. what I want to kind of transition though, because I know that people are going to be saying, well, I mean, this isn't so bad. Like, you know, California did this, Texas did this. Like there are ways around this. Why can't we use income as a proxy, for example? Sure. Right. Which on its face sounds great. Absolutely. If you're in poverty, getting to college is tough. You know, it's just going to be tough, period. Right. So, yeah, it sounds on its face like a good idea. But I was just wondering if you had some thoughts on that. I think that some of these solutions that people come up with are a way to appease themselves. Right. And to make themselves feel better about a really impactful decision. I don't care how many people, how many states did this before. I don't care how prepared people were. We're not about the this coming down. Um, what we've seen from other states that have done this is that, sure, some of them are they're they're able to, they've been able to come up with smart solutions that have helped them, but they haven't solved the problem. And in most cases. Um, you know, the population of students that this really hurts have not risen to the same level of attendance as they did before these um, policies were stripped away. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and I've heard people be like, well, but University of California, like they got back to where they wanted to. And I'm like, but it took years. And a lot of money, by the way. A lot of money. And like, we still know that the students applying to the UCs, particularly like Hispanic students, um, you know, does not come close to matching the um, the demographics around high school graduates, you know, who are Latino or Hispanic, however you want to define yourself mm-hmm. within that category. And so it's like, sure, we people can pat themselves on the back and say there's a way, but the way is long. Mm-hmm. The way puts a big burden on these students in the meantime. The way is expensive, as you mm-hmm. said. And um, again, really forces students, in my opinion, to not be their full selves, not have their full selves appreciated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important to note. And one of, and I want to point people, I found a, um, an article in the Wall Street Journal about this. I think we can agree that the Wall Street Journal is not a liberal rag. I think that, you know. She's a- a great reporter though, Melissa Korn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, Wall Street Journal has fact-based yeah. reporting. I, I don't agree with their opinions, but their yes. articles are well-researched and well-reported. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so not saying absolutely worth reading as I did, but I think, you know, clearly we're not talking about the nation. We're not talking about Mother Jones. We're talking about the Wall Street Journal. That's right. And she did a great article on how, especially if you look at like UC Berkeley and UCLA, in spite of all their efforts, they have not gotten back to where they were, or as you said, even close to a full representation right? Same thing with the University of Michigan, same thing with the Texas systems. Um, and in terms of like low income students, for example, obviously bringing in like have, do, having outreach to students who are underprivileged is a great idea. But there are so many low income students in states like California and Texas who are white, that they could just that, you know, you're still not solving the problem no. of having nor do you know, of having like, some kind of equal representation. And frankly, neither are all black students or um, Latino students poor. So don't we no. want full diversity? <laughs> we do want full diversity. Well, that's the other side of this too, is like, it, it, it gets to be a slippery slope when people tie, like they try to use income as a replacement for a race, because that makes it seem like they're equivalent. It's a false equivalency, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, I didn't, I, I wasn't, I didn't grow up poor, right? Like I am black mm -hmm. and I did not grow up poor. My daughter is biracial, will not grow up poor, is not growing up poor. It's not, it's not an automatic, they're not mm -hmm. on the same field necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, so I do find it frustrating when people say that it's like, it's not, it's not, that is important. And it's not quite what we're talking about here. Right. right. It just isn't the same thing. It's not the same solution that we're trying to solve for. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, I don't know, Sally, it's a tough time, right? Like <laughs> it's a really tough time. I wonder, can we talk to students about maybe like what this means for them? Mm -hmm. do do that? Yeah. Let's like, do that. We have just a few minutes left. Yeah. I mean, the way that I look at it, and I think you would agree, everybody, Sally and I have worked together for like a decade and a half. Um, <laughs> but I, I think you and I feel similarly and like, we don't want to tamp down our students' choice of schools, right? We don't want them to try to be someone that they're not. We don't want them to feel like they have to hide. And so to me, sort of what I'm talking about with my students Quite frankly, if they bring it up, not many have brought it up. I haven't really proactively mm -hmm. brought it up with my with my with my students, but it's like you know what? Let's just focus on finding appropriate schools where you think you'd like to land that offer you as much as we know um, the kind of environment that you wish for. Um, I have said to a couple of families, if this is important to you, you should be looking at the statements that were put out by whatever universities mm -hmm. you're um, looking into or offices of admission to sort of see how full-throated their support or lack of has been. And then you can decide. Um, and that we're still gonna really focus on writing insightful um, essays that are, uh, or, or working on towards insightful, well-written essays that um, share as much of the student's experience that's appropriate within the word count. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? And, and, you know, for, for students that may, you know, for all my Jack and Jill families out there, for all of my, um, you know, kiddos who might have gotten a scholarship or done um, volunteer work with the AKAs, right, a Black sorority, um, like any of those markers that come up that may indicate 
uh, racial or ethnic um, participation. Um, I don't want people to stop doing that. Don't stop going to Chinese school. Don't mm -hmm. stop talking about um, how as a Jewish student, you're working, you know, and doing Hebrew school. Mm -hmm. I think all that's still really, really important for everybody. Mm -hmm. Everybody. Everybody. This is part of your lived experience. And that's that right. is something that the colleges are allowed to consider. That's right. Right. So, but yeah. you got to do it individually. So, all right. Well, I do have to wrap this up um, to all our listeners who are still here, who are still listening. I want to really thank you. Um, you can tell this is something that Kira and I really care a lot about. Um, all right. And I want to thank you also to Michelle Clifton. Do join us next week when fellow host Shannon Vasconcelos will be answering listener questions, as well as interviewing Karen Kristoff, Vice President and Dean of Admission at Colorado College as part of our Niche College series. And remember, you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on Voice America. Don't forget, we're here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. New episodes drop every Thursday. The goal of this show is to demystify the college admissions process for families around the globe. To help with this mission, please leave a review and share with your friends. And to learn more about Bright Horizons College Coach, visit GetIntoCollege.com.